At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. And uh, thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Abraham Philip, and it's a delight and a pleasure to be here this morning with you. How many of you are so thankful that God is faithful in bringing Winston to this campus? God is faithful. We sang that, right? And here is the answer to that faithfulness, the answer to prayer. For months, we have prayed. And Lord, the Lord in His time, at the right time, with the right person, God has answered. And we are so thankful. I'm so thankful. Um, it means that I'm not here as often as I used to be. Uh, oh, no, no, don't go there. Um, because I love this man, and I know that God has um, great things in store for all of you. And, uh, and in store for him and his family, as God will use him to impact all of you and this community with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Many of us... Hopefully all of us, when we sit before a meal and before we get started, we say thanks for the food. Amen? We call that saying, oh, you say that too. Oh, that's good. But why do we say that? Why do we call it saying grace? Where did that come from? The word grace comes from a Latin word, gratis. Gratis has the meaning of favor. And that's how we typically use that word. We typically use it to mean unmerited favor. But that word has a second meaning in, the, in Latin, and that is thanks or gratefulness. In fact, in Italian, and if I asked my Italian family over here, you say grazie or si for thanks. So, both favor and thanks are bundled together in, in that word. And so when we're saying grace, we're thanking God for the favor of the food he has provided. Amen? Amen. That's what we're doing when we are saying grace. And so that word or that phrase or that thing that we do around a meal highlights a connection between grace and gratitude that we who have received grace are grateful for the grace that we have received, right? That's grace. That's what the, grace, the word grace means. It bundles together this idea of favor and thanks. And that's what we're going to look at. In fact, Jesus Christ, when he came through his death, burial, and resurrection, demonstrated God's grace to us, his unmerited favor, right? He showed us what grace looks like, that we who were sinners who receive the grace of God can be made right with God, and the right response of those who have received the grace of God is gratefulness. It's thanksgiving. It's that we who have been saved love God for what He has done. And that's what we have been singing all along. What do we have to boast about? We don't have an answer for the cross, do we? Because none of us deserved it. 
None of us earned it. None of us would have ever planned it. And yet God in His infinite wisdom saw fit to come and to die for us, to show us what grace looked like so that when grace interrupted our lives and when we gave ourselves to it, we return thanks to the giver of that favor. Amen? That's what we're going to look at this morning, that our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of His grace. Our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of His grace. If you're, if you're not already in Luke chapter 7, I encourage you to turn there. <clears throat> it was already read to us, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. But we have been in a series, this is the second week in a series called Soul Food, and we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at different times that Jesus encountered people around a meal. Jesus loved to eat. Amen? Amen. He did. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. All over the place, he's eating. In fact, even his stories have to deal with food. I love the Gospel of Luke because I love food. I love eating. And I'm so thankful that Jesus loved to eat as well. But we have been studying Jesus encountering people over a meal. And today we're going to come to a story where Jesus encounters two specific people. And we're going to learn through their lives and through this interaction that we who have grasped the grace of God have a response. And that response is, great, is, is gratefulness. I want to share with you three truths that help us understand that our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of grace. And the first is that grace received from Jesus results in great love for Jesus. Starting in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we read, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So here we have a scene that opens with an, a dinner invitation. Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to dinner. Simon is a Pharisee, and you know Pharisees. These are the people we love to hate, right? Um, these are the very confused people, people, a sect within Judaism who was very strict, very legalistic, who believed that if they followed the letter of the law, that if they followed every line and, and dot and tittle of the law, that they would honor God, that they would be righteous, and that God, having been pleased with them, would come, get rid of the Roman Empire, get rid of the, the slavery that they were in, and restore the kingdom back to its former glory. That's what they thought. And that's Simon, that's this man who invites Jesus to his house. Remember last week, if you were here, Jesus in Luke chapter 5 is having dinner with who? A tax collector named Levi or Matthew, right? But it's interesting that I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't care who invites him to dinner. He's willing to go. And by the way, so am I. If you're paying, I'll be there. I'm sure Winston will be too. Um, invite, we'll show up. We'll be happy just like Jesus. Jesus doesn't discriminate the dinner invitation. He's willing to go to a tax collector's house. He's willing to go to a Pharisee's house. He's willing to interact with anyone who is willing to interact with him. And I love that about Jesus. But we're not sure why this Pharisee has invited 
Jesus. We're going to find out perhaps a little later on some motives, but here we're not told what's going on or why he's there, but Jesus shows up at the home of Simon the Pharisee for dinner. Now, in this passage, we read that Jesus reclined at table. And so in first century, meals would be served on a a low table, perhaps about a foot off the ground, and dinner guests would come and they would sit on a cushion, and they would recline on the table with their left elbow, leaving their right arm free to grab the food and eat. And so their body and their feet are pointed away from the table. So that's the posture that all of these dinner guests that are invited are in. They're all reclining. They're leaning on the table, and they're eating off the table with their feet away from them. That's what everybody else is doing. But homes in the first century are not like the closed-off private homes that we have here today. Homes in the first century were open. Typically, they had an open courtyard. And in fact, dinner guests would would be seated in in the courtyard, and that's where they would have dinner. And if you invited a famous rabbi or someone of note into your home, other people who weren't part of the dinner invitation could still come and still stand around the dinner table and listen in on the conversation. How would you like that? Somebody watching you eating and chewing (laughs) and, and, and having a conversation. But that was normal in the first century. So you can imagine, here is Jesus reclining at the table. He's eating, surrounded by a bunch of perhaps other Pharisees at Simon's house. And around them, against the wall or against the fence or the courtyard or whatever they had, are all of these other people from the community who've come to listen in on the conversation. So that's the picture. And into that setting, we're introduced to a woman. She has no name. But she is notorious because the Bible here says she is a woman of the city. And she has a label. Her label is that she is a sinner. Now, we're not sure what her sin is. Most scholars believe that she's a prostitute. But the truth is we don't know. We, actually, we have no idea. The only thing we know is that this woman of this city has a reputation that she is a sinner. And this woman walks into Simon's house, into the courtyard, in the, into that dinner area where there's food on the table and conversation going on and people standing all around listening to that conversation. She walks in carrying an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume. She comes and she stands behind the feet of Jesus. And what does she do? As she, we're not exactly sure what she intended, but here she is when she gets to the feet of Jesus, she breaks down. She starts to cry. Not just any old crying, but she's weeping. She's weeping so hard and so fast, and the tears are so much that she is drenching the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Here's all of these respectable people And there's Jesus, and there's Simon, and all of these religious leaders who are probably at this dinner invitation, having a meal and having a conversation, and to be interrupted by the weeping of a woman who is a sinner. And there she's standing, weeping, drenching the feet of Jesus. And she somehow recognizes that, and she stoops down, she unties her hair, she unbraids her hair, And she starts wiping his feet with her hair. Now, you and I read that, and and that's, okay, that's nice. But that wasn't so nice back then. You see, in the first century, 
a woman was to have her hair bound up and covered. The only time she would uncover or unbound her hair was in the privacy of her bedroom. For her to undo her hair and to let it out was scandalous. In fact, the Talmud, the law, said that a man could divorce his wife if she let down her hair in public. So you can imagine how scandalous this is that in the middle of this large invitation of dinner with all of these people standing around, this woman undoes her hair and she's wiping the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine the gasp that went through that dinner as she did that? Scandalous. She is having a very intimate moment with Jesus. And then she starts kissing his feet. And then she breaks off the neck of the alabaster jar. She pours that ointment on his feet and she anoints his feet. It's the most expensive thing she most likely owned. And she broke it and she anointed the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine being there, being one of the dinner guests, being one of the Pharisees? Can you imagine what you're thinking as this woman, this sinner, touches Jesus? And yet, this woman doesn't have a care, does she? In the middle of all of these people, she has eyes for one person, and who is that? She's got eyes for Jesus. Why? Any one of these things would have been an enormous sign of love. Any one of these things would have been enough to show that she was in love with Jesus. But all of these things combined together show an extravagance, an intimacy. It's way over the top. Why? Why do something so outrageous? I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe that she has encountered the grace of God somewhere else. That perhaps she was at Simon, at Levi's house in Luke chapter 5. Perhaps when Jesus got together with the tax collectors and sinners, she was there. Perhaps she heard that Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. Perhaps she was in the crowd when Jesus was preaching and he said, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Perhaps she heard Jesus say, I have come to call sinners to repentance. And so after hearing that and processing that and seeing who Jesus is, Somewhere along the way, she came to grasp the truth that if she was ever going to find love, true love, she would only find it in that man. And she experienced the grace of God. And having experienced the grace of God, she could do nothing less than to show an extravagance of love because grace that invades a heart responds in love. Amen? And here she is, surrounded by men who want nothing to do with her, she doesn't care because she's got eyes for Jesus and she's willing to do anything and everything to demonstrate her love for him because his grace has invaded her life. Friends, the grace of God that invaded her life is the same grace that's available to all of us today. Amen? That the same grace that interrupted her life and saved her is the same grace available to us. It's not exclusive to her it's available to all of us. You see, Jesus didn't come just for her. He came for all of us. For God so loved the... Guess what? That includes you. 
That includes me. That Jesus came to die on a cruel cross to demonstrate the depth of his love for you and for me, the depth of his grace, that we don't have to clean up, we don't have to, 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 to right our ship, we don't have to wash up, we don't have to do anything. There is nothing we can do to earn the grace that is available in Jesus. Amen? Nothing. It's simply that we need to recognize it and then receive it. And that's what I believe this woman did, that she recognized her need for grace received that grace, and then lavished her love upon Jesus for the grace that had invaded her life. Friends, how about us? Have we experienced the grace of God? If you haven't, may I invite you to do so today. But if you have, how does that grace express itself in gratitude and love for the one who gave it all? We sang the song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That's you and that's me. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away. And all the rest of that song that talks about the pain of God's grace extended for you and for me. What have we done with the grace of God? Has the grace of God interrupted our lives in such a way that we, like this woman, don't care who's in the audience, doesn't care who's in the room, is willing to love on Jesus for the great grace and favor that was shown to us? I pray that favor received would result in love and thanksgiving and worship of our great God. Amen? The extravagance of this woman's love stands in stark contrast to the second character in this story, and that is Simon. And in fact, that's the second truth we learn as we look at Simon, is that grace refused from Jesus results in little love for Jesus. Notice verse 39. Now when, Jesus, when, <clears throat> now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So here's Simon. Now Simon is probably thinking the same thing everybody else is thinking. He's a Pharisee. Remember, Pharisees preach a very strict holiness by separation. They believe that if you come in contact with a sinner, you become a sinner. If you come into touch with a, some, somebody who's defiled, you become defiled. If you come into contact with somebody who's unclean, you become unclean. And so here's Simon watching this woman, a notorious sinner from this town, come into the dinner and then touch Jesus. <gasps> this is bad. Because what's going on in Simon's head? If this was a prophet of God, he would know. He would know what kind of woman this is and who she was. In fact, Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar, says, in Simon's mind, pious figures like prophets have nothing to do with sinners. If spiritual people are to maintain purity and testimony, association with sinners is prohibited. The very fact that this sinner is touching Jesus, in Simon's mind, he's rejecting Jesus as a prophet. You see, he's already rejected this woman as a sinner. He calls himself what? 
righteous. He thinks he's all right. But, but for Jesus, he's now rejecting Jesus as a prophet and thereby rejecting the grace that is offered through Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't fit. Jesus doesn't fit into the category or the mold or the pattern that he has for a prophet of God. Now, all of this is in the mind of Simon. But I don't know if you notice the next verse, but Jesus addresses Simon's question that he had in his head. I love Jesus. Jesus, by the way, knows your thoughts. If you didn't know that before, this story certainly tells us that Jesus knows our thoughts. And Jesus here addresses Simon's thought. Notice verse number 40. And Jesus answering, answering his thoughts said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So Simon's question that's ringing in his head, Jesus answers with a parable. Aren't, you know, that's, that's normal Jesus, right? Jesus wants to get a point across. He brings up two debtors, two people who have borrowed money. Both of them have borrowed different sums of money, but both of them can't pay. So they show up at the debtor's place and say, we can't pay. And guess what the debtor says? That's all right. I've forgiven you. Can you imagine that? So you read that and it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. So let's, let's make this personal. You call your bank up tomorrow and you say, I can't pay my mortgage. Oh, yes. <laughs> I can't pay my mortgage. And they say, don't worry about it. It's covered. In fact, we've canceled your mortgage. You are free and clear. We'll send you a letter stating that tomorrow. What do you think? Some of you need to process that. A miracle. Praise the Lord. Would it change your life? Oh, you better believe it. Would you ever forget that event? That's what's going on here. Two debtors can't pay, and the, and the creditor says, I forgive the debt. Oh! A denarii or a denarius was one day's wages. Fifty denarius or denarii are basically two months' worth of work. The other guy has borrowed ten times that much. It's about 18 months' worth of work. You multiply it with whatever hourly wage you want, you, you'll get a number. And the creditor says, I forgive you. It's paid in full. And so then Jesus comes to the punchline. Which of those two debtors, ex-debtors, will love the creditor more? And Simon certainly knows the answer, right? He says, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose the one that was forgiven more. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. What's the point? Grace received results in thankfulness. The more grace we have received, the more thankful we are. Amen?
That's the point. But, Simon, but Jesus is not done with Simon. You see, Simon thinks he's righteous. Simon thinks he's okay. Simon thinks he doesn't need the grace of God because he's kept all of God's law perfectly. As far as Simon is aware, he's right with God and he doesn't need saving. But Jesus is going to interrupt that train of thought. And if you watch what Jesus does, he now compares what Simon has done to what this woman has done. You see, in the first century, they have common courtesies similar to how we have common courtesies, right? If you were to come to my house as a guest for dinner, you would expect some courtesy, right? When you came and rang my doorbell, you would not expect me to shout from the kitchen, come on in! No, what would you expect? You'd expect me to show up at the door, open the door, and receive you with either a, sh a shake of your hand or a hug, take your coat, hang, especially today, take your coat, hang it up, and then welcome you into the home and offer you something to, or you do that too. <clears throat> it's called common courtesy. It's no different in the first century. When a guest was invited to a home, the host was to greet the guest with a kiss on the cheek. That's similar to our shaking of hands. And because that guest is coming in off the roads, common courtesy was to provide a basin of water for the guest to wash their feet because roads in Israel were just dirt trails. They were dusty, they were dirty, and shoes were just soles with leather uh, straps. And so their feet were dirty and dusty, and a guest, a proper guest, would offer a water basin for the guest to wash or provide a servant who would do that work as well. And then another common courtesy was to anoint the head with a, a drop of scented oil as the person came in out of the hot, dry sun to cool them, to refresh them, to help them smell better too. <clears throat> but common courtesy. But guess what? Simon has done None of these. Simon hasn't shown Jesus one shred of common courtesy. I think it's safe to say that Simon's intent in, in inviting Jesus into his home was not to honor him, but to humiliate him. That Simon's intent was to find a way to trap Jesus because up to this point, you see, the Pharisees have become slowly more and more upset with what Jesus is teaching and with what he's doing, specifically for him doing miracles on the Sabbath day. You can read that in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And so here he is. He's invited Jesus to trap him, to humiliate him, to find a way to catch him in his deeds or in his words. And we know that because of the way he treated Jesus. But the woman, on the other hand, has done everything, has done everything that Simon has refused to do. Why? Because unlike the debtor who had been forgiven in the parable, Simon didn't think he needed forgiving. Simon didn't think he needed grace. Simon didn't think he was on God's bad side. And therefore, he refused the grace that was offered to him in Jesus. And when you refuse the grace of Jesus, it results in very little love and thankfulness in your heart. Friends, I hope that's not us. I hope that we aren't like Simon. That we think we can look down our self-righteous noses at people and say, huh, I'm not like that guy. You know, we love to compare ourselves to that guy, right? You know that guy? You know what that guy has done? 
I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. We like to do that, don't we? Because we like to make ourselves feel better and look better. But the truth is all of us are debtors, right? And none of us can pay. And the only way to get our debt paid off is to receive the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ. Because grace refused results in very little thankfulness and love. And that brings me to my third point. As this meal wraps up and as this story wraps up, this connection between grace and gratitude comes to a climax in verse number 48. And we learn that our actions of love reveal a faith that saves. In verse 48 we read, And he said to her, this is Jesus speaking to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? <clears throat> and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now Jesus could have certainly stopped with the parable. He could have stopped with the contrast between the woman and Simon. He could have certainly done all that. But you know, Jesus never does anything half-baked, does he? Never anything half-baked. He takes everything up to its logical conclusion. He steps it up another notch. And then he looks at this scene. He looks at this woman and he tells her, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but all week I have stopped at that verse and I have wept. I can't tell you why, but all I can tell you is that on the cross my sins are forgiven. Amen? Those are the most powerful words anyone can hear. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. When you recognize the weight of those words, when you recognize the depth of God's love for you and for me, when you recognize what it took for God to pay off the debt that you and I owed, your sins are forgiven, takes on a whole new world of meaning and weight. And we can't help but be grateful, can we? Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus pronounces this, and by the way, those words are powerful because the people sitting around that table start to murmur, who is this? Because they rightly recognize that only God can forgive sin. Here is a woman who has experienced God's grace at some point in her past. And the words Jesus uses here is in the perfect tense, which means that forgiveness wasn't a result of her anointing the feet of Jesus. Her forgiveness happened at some point in the past. At some point in the past when she had received the grace of God, when she recognized Jesus as the person from whom she was going to receive love, as she recognized the grace available to her in Jesus, she was forgiven. Jesus now proclaims that truth publicly. Your sins have been forgiven. That's powerful. And in making that pronouncement, he is clearly articulating that he is no mere prophet, but he is God in the flesh. Amen? And they recognize it. The Pharisees recognize that truth, that that's what he is claiming. And they're all up in arms over that, over that fact. And if that weren't enough, he looks at this woman and says, your faith has saved you. Friends, salvation is always by faith alone, through grace alone. Amen? Nothing that she did, she recognized her need and she received grace. And then Jesus says, go in peace. She who once was far away from God, she once who was an enemy of God, 
She once who was an object of God's wrath is no longer an object of God's wrath. Amen? She is now at peace with God, in harmony with Him. And so God, Jesus, blesses her with peace. And she leaves that place full of joy and full of thanksgiving and full of wonder because of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus, my friends, is the gracious moneylender. He's the one who forgives our debt. And all of us have a debt that we cannot pay, and it's Jesus who forgives that debt. But just let me make sure you understand this, that when Jesus forgives her debt, he is assuming responsibility for what she has done. Now let me explain that a different way. If I borrow $1,000 from you, in fact, if all of you would pitch in, that'd be great. <laughs> but if I were to borrow $1,000 from each of you, and I come back tomorrow and say, I am very sorry, I cannot pay it. What would you think? Now, don't tell me what you think. It's all right. <laughs> but you could be gracious and say what? That's all right, Abe, I forgive you. And I would love you forever. It's okay. But, but guess what? You're still out $1,000, aren't you? The fact that I cannot repay your $1,000 means that you are out of $1,000. For Jesus to say to this woman, her sins are forgiven, Jesus is agreeing to assume responsibility for her sin. Do you understand that? Jesus is saying, I will take it. And you know where he took it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. There on a cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the perfect, spotless, unblemished Son of God, hung on a cross, bleeding from every side, not because of anything he did, but because of what you did, what this woman did. And there he was treated a sinner. There God the Father saw him as a sinner. And upon his body, God the Father poured out upon him the full measure of the wrath of God against sin, that he who knew no sin became sin on that day for us. So when he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I'm taking your sin. I'm going to pay your debt, and I'll pay that on Calvary. My friends, Jesus has done that for all of us, hasn't he? That all of us have heard who have received the grace of God. We have received his forgiveness purchased for us at the cross of Calvary. This woman's sin, your sin, my sin, all placed upon him. He died the death we should have died so that he could make a way for us. You know, Jesus is still in the business of saving, isn't he? He's still in the business of reaching those who are lost. Tina Hoffman is an ex-prostitute. She writes in her testimony that she was in her hotel room waiting for her next client, but he was taking his time, and so she decided she would smoke a joint, and so she started looking for her joint, but she couldn't find it, and then she started to look all over the hotel room looking for her joint, and for some reason, she still couldn't find it, and so she starts to open the, the drawers of the bureau next to her hotel room, and guess what's in the top drawer of most hotel rooms? A Gideon Bible. Praise God for them. And she pulls out a Gideon Bible. 
And she somehow thinks that her joint is in this Bible somewhere. And so she starts leafing through the pages of this Gideon Bible. And she says in her testimony that she turned to a passage and the words of that page leapt out of that book and into her heart. And this is those words. But God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. She writes in her testimony, I read that. I said, I believe that. And she got up and she left that hotel room. And as she was leaving, her client was coming in. She said, see you, never to see him or that lifestyle ever again. My friends, Jesus, yes, Jesus is still in the business of saving people. If you are here today and you have never knelt at the cross, let me invite you to do that. You may have thought you were righteous. You may have thought you didn't need saving. You have thought maybe all the other things in this world of power and money and fame and prestige or perhaps it's drugs and alcohol and everything else can satisfy you. But my friends, the truth is none of that will. None of that will. Because God has created a void in your heart that can only be filled by his love. And that love is found at the cross. You see, Jesus died for you and he died for me. He died on the cross, not because of his sins, but your sins and mine. And if you have never accepted him, may I ask you to do that today, that you would come to know him by faith, that you would say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I repent, I turn away from them, and I turn to you, and I ask you to come into my life, and that you would save me. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And like this woman who left saved, who left with the peace of God, you can have the peace of God in your life. But you have to recognize your need for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself up for it. You don't have to do anything for it. You just have to recognize your need and then receive it. It is free. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.